0: We're going to look this morning at Galatians chapter 6, I'm going to speak on verses 1 through 10 which I will read momentarily and we're going to see that the aim of Galatians chapter 6 verses 1 through 10 is on how the Holy Spirit transforms community. So That's the the emphasis that I want to look at this morning and having just presented the fruit that the two natures bear within an individual's life at the end of chapter 5, which Rick spoke on last week, the fruit of Adam's nature or the flesh being the first and the fruit of Christ's nature or the spirit, Paul continues in his line of thinking or in his logic towards a a logical conclusion in his mind. So chapter 6 is just a continuation and next week when we finish our study through Galatians, I'm going to read the entirety of Galatians just so that we can feel the, the weight and the movement and the emphasis of all that Paul has said. And, and we will have taken, I think in the end, it'll be like 12 weeks by the time. And so when we break it up into parts and pieces, sometimes we just miss the flow of the author. But chapter 5 into chapter 6, there's movement. It's not, a, it's not an end of one thing necessarily in the beginning of another, it's Paul moving on in logic to a conclusion, and that conclusion is the body of Christ. It's the church. So Paul's talked about the fruit of the Spirit in an individual's life, and now he's saying, but there is, there is an implication, if you will, for that fruit of the Spirit. And there is now a, 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 another expression, and that expression is the church itself. And Paul isn't simply landing here because this is who he has written the letter to. He's not going to talk about the church because it's a group that he's written the letter. While, of course, that is true, Paul could have easily just has finished his letter at the end of chapter 5 on the individual. He could have spoken to all those beautiful and wonderful truths about, about the, the gospel and regeneration in the life of a believer and ended with the individual, but he didn't. Instead, he moves to the corporate expression of these radical gospel truths because this is why Paul knows that the church is God's ultimate expression of his kingdom on earth. Just think about that, and I know you probably would agree with that on the surface level, but let me say it again, and I want you to think about the significance of the statement. The church is God's ultimate expression and final expression of his kingdom on earth. In other words, the significance of the church is greater than the significance of the individual. When it, terms, when it comes to the terms of the manifestation of the kingdom of God and the purposes of God on the earth, the church is the ultimate end. Now, you might not agree with that statement, but hopefully in the moments here, there's compelling enough reason for you to reconsider. And so, before I read verses 1 through 10, if we could just pause here for a moment, and if we could drill down or read between the lines, I think that we're going to see a really significant truth. That the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and, and the grace of salvation is the fulfillment of a corporate promise. So often, it's individual but what I believe Paul's emphasis is, and what I believe the Lord wants us to see and to understand, for reasons which I'll speak of in a moment, is that, the, is that Christ Jesus was a fulfillment of a corporate promise. And so why do I say that? Because in Genesis chapter 12, which Paul has already referred to in his letter, the Abrahamic covenant, and what God had established with Abraham in Genesis 12, and in Genesis 15, and in Genesis 17... The promise found there, that blessing that God commits to bringing about through Abraham is not a blessing of many individuals living obediently to the Lord, independent from one another, which when I say that, doesn't that sound absurd? The promise wasn't an individualistic expression of faith that God made with Abraham, It was a national promise. It was a kingdom promise, a promise that would result in a new and a great nation, united by distinct values, living out of of clear and identifiable ethics and lifestyle, bound together by way of of their new citizenship and underneath the lordship of their one and only king. That was the fulfillment of what came about through the Abrahamic covenant. God's promise to Abraham wasn't, I'll make you a great autonomous collective from which you yourself will be blessed. The promise to Abraham was, I will make of you a great nation so that you will be a blessing and in you, the Lord says to Abraham, all of the families of the world will be blessed. Nations bless nations. And I want us to remember the the aim of this study that I have put forth a few times, that understanding and living in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ helps us to combat the myriad of counterfeit gospels that the world presents to us. And I would say that sadly, and, and with incredibly great concern, the importance of the gathered church seems to be another casualty in Satan's schemes. Over the last six years, professing Christians have shifted significantly in their worldview of worshiping with other believers. And I read something recently, it was Ligonier's State of Theology survey, which they do every two years, where they, they poll the church and they ask the same questions every two years. And we have now have about six or eight years of track record of these same questions. And over the last six years, there has been a significant shift now to where 35% of the church believes that worshiping at home with your family is an acceptable means of corporate worship. 35% of the church isn't that amazing? But I, what I'm here to say this morning, brothers and sisters, is that God's purpose always culminates in the physical collective of believers. And I don't mean strictly the invisible church or the church universal, the broader body, past, present, and future that we're all united to through faith. So often people will appeal to that, oh, I am a part of the church, I'm worshiping with the saints. Where two or three are gathered, there is the Lord. And somehow that that would constitute an acceptable means of corporate worship. That's not what I'm speaking about. I mean a localized community of believers brought together through faith and who by the grace of God are bound to one another and commissioned to carry out a common mission in an effort to advance the kingdom of God in a localized geographical area. That's what I mean by the corporate expression of the church. And if you spend any amount of time with us over the last year, we studied, we studied like what? Almost a year it felt like through Ezra and Nehemiah, and it was all about the people of God and the restoration of God's people and, and God forging through the fires of exile And slavery, a people who would be united in purpose of the worship and advancement of God's kingdom on earth. It's always about a people, brothers and sisters. And so we can't miss this important gospel truth. Because here's why. If if this is compromised, if this is compromised, if this is undervalued, then portions of Scripture like which I'm about to read this morning suddenly become optional or like an add-on from an a la carte menu. If the corporate gathering is not understood in the significance of how God has created it, then we read Scripture when it talks about the corporate as something that is optional for us. And we miss the significance of what God really, truly wants to do. And so again, I just want to say, church, that God's ways and his purposes are designed for a people and not for an individual. So let's look now at Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. I'm going to read from the ESV. If you don't have an ESV, we'll have it on the monitor for you. Paul says this. This is the word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. Brothers... And the intention there in the Greek is sisters as well. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life and let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up so then as we have opportunity let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith and we say amen so having just spoke on what it looks like for each of us to individually walk by the spirit and be led by the Spirit, and to keep in step with the Spirit. That's the language that Paul uses in chapter 5. Now Paul's focus shifts to the end result. This is what it looks like for a community of the redeemed to walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, and to keep in step together with the Spirit as the new creation. This is what it's about. Those who have been made new, reborn by the Spirit of God. Those who are spiritual being placed together by His sovereign and providential plan to live out gospel truth distinctly in the midst of darkness. So church, again, I must say that this matters greatly to God and it ought to also matter greatly to us. And I know that you've heard me say that before, multiple times. Not just that we're here in terms of putting butts in seats. That's not what's important. But what we do when we're here, what we pursue when we're here, what we say to one another when we're together, all of that matters greatly. How we worship in song matters. How we respond to the promptings of the Spirit of God in the worship gathering, all of that matters, church. That's why there's no substitute for this. There's nothing that can do what the gathering of the saints can do. Do you feel the weight of that, church? When we think about any other institution man-made, there is nothing as wonderful or as significant or as divinely organic in nature than the church itself. And so this matters a great deal because what, like a family, what the other members of the family do or say or pursue, it speaks loudly to the outsiders about the family itself, doesn't it? Or a couple, a, a couple that's to be wed, what the bride does or says, or how she acts in relationship towards her bridegroom speaks significantly about the bridegroom himself. But Paul's not just concerned with the outsiders, because these marks of a Spirit-filled, Spirit-led community are indicators to the community itself that the Spirit is at work within them. That's why Paul is speaking these things to a group of believers. They're indicators that the Spirit is at work in our midst. And what's more is that they're also indicators of of symptoms when they begin or when we begin to live again under the power of the flesh. So when there is a lack, we know that there is a lack of the Spirit working in our community, working through us and us by the Spirit. And there's a foundation that's assumed by Paul, which I believe is found throughout the rest of his writings, which we won't necessarily take the time to look at in this moment, but I just want to say this. A key characteristic is, is that the undergirding of this type of people is love for Paul. It's love that restores the wayward brother. It's love that restores the wayward sister in a spirit of gentleness. It's love that enables us to bear one another's burdens, and it's love that manifests itself in the sharing of our resources. Love is the undergirding of all of this. And John says, or or Jesus says in John chapter 13, that a new commandment now I give to you. What does he say? That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And we know this next verse so well. By By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love, church, love. But what what sort of love? Turn with me to Mark chapter 12. In Mark chapter 12, I want to read verses 28 through, I don't know, I'll figure it out. But beginning in verse 28, I know where I want to start. Mark chapter 12, verse 28, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And this is Jesus' answer, verse 29. The most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Love is the underpinning of the new creation. And all that we're to do and say and act out ought to be informed by our love for God and our love for each other. But listen, What sort of love is important because this is not a man-oriented or a man-originated is what I meant to say, a man-originated type of love. There's a greater love that's now at work within his new creation, within us and within his church. It's a God-originated love. It's a love that comes by way of God's, from the character of God and the nature of God and flows to us and through us. The love in the Greek is the agape, or agape, I think is how it's actually pronounced. We tend to think of this love that we have with each other as, a, as the phileo type of love, the brotherly love, the fellowship type of love that we have with each other. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here in Mark. And that's not what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This love is a different type of love. It's a love that we only experience because the love of Christ has been poured out into our hearts. It comes from God to us. This is the undergirding, brothers and sisters, of how we as the church function as a new community by the Spirit of God, out of a place of love. And I'm going somewhere with this, I promise. I'm going to teach Galatians chapter six. I just, we have to get this together. So stick with me. So the question then is this, what does this love practically look like? What does the transformational power of the Spirit produce in a community of regenerate Christ followers? And in Galatians chapter 6, Paul lists three one another's in verse 1, in verse 2, and in verse 6. And now, just, just by way of saying This isn't a comprehensive list. So I don't think we ought to read this and say, man, we get these three things and we've got it figured out. No, we have to remember the context. It's probably that these were three areas that the Galatian church really struggled in and it was appropriate for Paul to address it. So it isn't for us to say like, it's three and it's no more. And I also want us to notice that the the believers' responsibility to each other, those Three things that were stated, the one another's, in verse 1, 2, and in verse 6. The believers' responsibility to each other's, they're balanced by our accountability to God, which Paul asserts in the in-between verses as well. Do you get what I'm saying? So in other words, Paul is saying, this is what a spirit-filled community does in terms of how it acts with one another. However... This is also our responsibility unto God. And by doing so, Paul, in essence, is placing guardrails on either side of the Christian walk, our responsibility to each other and our responsibility to God. And it's like the bumpers that you put up on a bowling alley to ensure that you don't go into the gutter. Paul places these two things and he says, keep yourself in tension between these these two guardrails, if you will. And you will find yourself on the true path of freedom in the Christian walk. And so Paul will say in Galatians 6, if anyone's caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And then Paul says this, what is our obligation to God? Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. And then Paul says, bear one another's burdens. But then he says, let each one test his own works, for each will have to bear his own load. And then he says, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches, but do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And so there are these two things in place that Paul gives to us. Markers, guide rails, if you will. So the first, I want to go through these three one another's with the time that I have left this morning. The first is this, it's restore. If anyone's caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And I was thinking about each of these in relationship to this broader, overarching umbrella theme of false gospels. And I was thinking to myself, man, Christian culture is an interesting thing. We get restoration wrong because we get correction wrong. You can't restore something unless first it's been corrected. And the Christian culture, I think, has become widely unhelpful when it comes to restoration. Perhaps we don't want to seem judgmental or Perhaps we're too condemned in our own sin, and so therefore we don't feel as though we have a right to speak to somebody else. Or perhaps we don't want to deal with the fallout of the relational dynamic that comes with this type of commandment that Paul gives to us. So rather than confront in love, oftentimes we'd much rather just turn a blind eye to someone's entanglement, or even perhaps we just quietly judge. Man, did you see did you see like what their kid was doing today? Those guys, they're messed up. They don't have a clue. Right? Or did you see how he was talking to his wife? Psh, I'm glad I'm not him. But we we do I mean I'm being facetious, but we do this to a degree. I'm I'm guilty of it. Where it's just much easier to just go Psh, no deal with that. Rather than saying, hey, have you considered? Do you see that what you're doing is leading to A, B, and C potentially? But what in reality, church, what they really need is for their brother or sister to confront the sin. And Paul is saying that this is a mark of a spirit filled Christian community. This is a mark of the Spirit being at work within a Christian community. How do we know this? Because look at the world, the counterfeit, which is, which is in this particular case literally opposite of what kingdom culture is. The world says, it's not your business. What right do you have to say that to me? Or what makes you an expert in A, B, or C? That's what the world says, right? In other words, butt out. Leave me to myself and I'll leave you to yourself. But what Paul is saying is we don't have that luxury as a community of God. And what a powerful countercultural testimony it is when we do this and do it well, when we pursue this with one another. But Paul says, those who are to restore are those who are spiritual. It says in verse 1, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. It isn't just the responsibility of the pastor or the elder, although oftentimes we might be more able with our time and might be more available emotionally from time to time. It's not just our responsibility, church. It's the role of the community to confront the sin and lead the individual to repentance and to restoration. Jesus speaks of this in Matthew 18, the process for confronting sin. And it isn't grab your pastor and make them confront the individual, right? No, if a brother has sinned against you, you go to the brother, one commentator who I read this week said the rehabilitation of sinners is a job for spiritual people because only spiritual people can restore. Think about that for a moment. It's our job because only we are truly capable of bringing someone to restoration. Only those who themselves have experienced the kindness of God that stimulates repentance. And the forgiveness of God, which brings life and joy, only those people can lead someone to authentic reintegration into the body of Christ. And this word, restore, in the meaning for it here implies putting something back in order again or returning something to its former condition. In other words, it has fallen to a state of dis-whatever I was going to say disrepair, I'm not disrepair. You get my point. It's fallen from its place where it ought to be. Brothers and sisters, it's ours to help put it back together. In addition, only truth can drive away error. That's why those who are spiritual must restore. Only truth can drive out error. No matter the Eloquence, no matter how how sound the advice might be, if it isn't genuine and authentic gospel truth, the restoration cannot be fully achieved. We must be those who restore. And this is important. Restoration is both a heart matter within the individual of repentance and turning, but it's also a holistic matter as it pertains to the corporate or to the whole body of Christ. It's both heart and holistic. Both need restoration in that sense, the individual and the corporate. And without going into it, we understand the significance of the of the analogy of the body of Christ and why Paul uses The the physical body is an analogy. When one thing is sick, the whole body is sick. When something or someone is out of place, it's not just the individual who suffers, but the whole body suffers as well, right? This is why restoration is so important, brothers and sisters. This is why we can no longer turn a blind eye. I need it. You need it. Can I also point out that restoration assumes accountability and submission. You hear what I'm saying? Restoration assumes that one has fallen from somewhere in order to be restored back to it. In other words, they're known within the community. This is why we have covenant membership within this community. Because for us, we need to know, who has God called me to be alongside of in this process of restoration from time to time. Who am I accountable to? Not me as an elder, but I'm saying that from your perspective. Each one of you, who are you accountable to? You're accountable to those whom the Lord has placed you into covenant community with. And so there's an, an assumption on Paul's part, although we know that covenant membership is not spoken of in terms of an explicit ordinance within Scripture, but we understand that within the heart of god that there is and within the new testament example that we're given that there is this assumption of those who are known by the community and so just again to say that in order to restore someone to a place they have to have fallen from a place there's also the perspective i would say in the expectation on the part of the one that is entangled. We cannot be offended when someone seeks us out because we know that their aim is love. At least we ought not be offended. If you came to me and you said, listen, I'm concerned. I heard you say this. I've seen you do this in your life, and it's a concern to me. My first inclination might in my flesh be to be like, Hey, what the heck? But if I'm honest, I have to say, gosh, that person really loves me. That person risked our relational equity, risked being misunderstood, risked being uh, perhaps being seen as offensive because they love me and because they want to see me not remain in my entanglement. And listen, let me just be clear too, I don't think Paul is, is speaking about those who sin like on the occasion. We're talking about someone that is bound by sin, right? So what is it isn't be like, "Oh, I heard you swear. I need to confront that and we need to restore you." That's that's not what I'm saying. Ooh, I I didn't mean to point over here. <laughs> my my mother's going, "Wait a minute. Were you offended? I said it out of love." <laughs> That's not what Paul's talking. Paul's talking about those who are entangled, ensnared. That's that's what's what's addressed here. Secondly, he says to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And this, too, is another area where a false gospel has made its way into the church. Culture today fosters a me first orientation. Me first. I'm primary. Got to take care of me, a little bit of me time. And then I can take care of you. It says that your personal journey, your perspective, or even your present difficulties are the most important and therefore warrant the most focus and personal attention. That's what culture says. We're too self-consumed to take up or sometimes even see the needs of those whom God has placed us in community with. And I'm not casting stones in a glass house. I'm guilty of this from time to time as well. But the kingdom of God, church, is first and foremost an us-first orientation. Remember what I said a moment ago. This agape love is the underpinning of the new creation, and this agape love sees others first. In 1 Corinthians 13, which I alluded to a moment ago, We've got a greater glimpse into the weight that love can shoulder, where Paul says this, that love bears all things, believes all things, and hopes all things, endures all things. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. You ever heard that text read outside of a marriage ceremony? That might be the first time right there. Church, there are burdens that we carry that God has never intended for us to carry alone. In fact, we're often incapable of carrying those burdens. Instead, he's put us into a place that is a means by which we're able to endure. First, We know this, that we are to cast our cares upon Him because He cares for us, first and foremost. We never lose sight of that very thing that God intends in Himself to carry much on our behalf. However, He's also placed another means by which this happens, and that is the community of believers. We turn to each other. Church, prayer for one another, counsel and advice, giving of our resources, our time, our treasures. And our talents, a warm embrace, a thoughtful phone call, a simple follow-through. These are all ways that we can care in sharing one another's burdens. I had a conversation just this week with a brother in this church, and they were sharing something that they were going through. And at the end of it, they said to me, I just felt like, you know, you know, as as the lead elder of this church, it was something that you needed to know. And I said to them, I, it doesn't matter if I was an elder or not. I would want to know this as your friend. I want to, I want to shoulder this with you as a friend. These are things, brothers and sisters, that should happen every single time a need from this community arises. And each need is met with a different response. So I'm not saying... It has to be some cookie cutter thing, like what's the problem, go over to A, check off the box. No, what I'm saying is is just to be aware, to live this way, to perceive the needs of one another, and to shoulder the loads with each other in various forms because none of us were called to do this alone, and some burdens are too great to bear on our own. And yet this is another reason why we are called not to walk our faith out alone in isolation. God did not design us for isolation. God designed us for community. And God has placed the church as a primary means of living out this Christian life as a, as a means for thriving, as a means for sustenance, as a means for encouragement and growth and strength. That's why the church exists. And Paul says that when we do this, we fulfill the law of Christ. And remember what I read out of Mark 12. The new covenant law is now summed up in two commands. Love God. And what sort of love? Agape love. Not just brotherly affection. To love, It's a sacrificial love. That's what agape is. To love God with all of your heart. With every single ounce of our being, I love the, just the language there in Mark. It's like every single part of who you are should love God. And then he turns right around and says, and love your brother, the same sort of love. Brothers and sisters, let's let ourselves be inconvenienced. Learn to make sacrifices for others. Let your schedules be interrupted and your calendars rearranged for those whom God has placed you into community with. This isn't just a role for the pastor or the elders of this church. It's for all who are spiritual. And then thirdly, he says, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. And it might feel a little bit self-serving if Paul would have spoken more broadly about sharing with one another, but it's the Word of God, and, and and interestingly enough, Paul unquestionably gets specific: Those who are taught are to share with those who are teaching on the cert. no one said, "Yeah, that's good." <laughs> it's awfully silent out there.) <laughs> So on the surface, this this third might seem actually just disjointed from the previous two, but if we pause for a moment, we take a deeper dive, we see that it actually might be a continuation of Paul's thought in verse 2, and bearing with one another. This is yet just another way that we who are spiritual bear the burdens of others. Namely, and specifically, those who are called to teach the Word of God, those who are called to prayer, and those who are called to the oversight and spiritual well-being of the community of God. Paul is saying, bear their burdens as well. The great Matthew Henry says it this way, It's the duty of those who are taught in the Word to support those who are appointed to teach them. For they are to communicate to them in all good things, freely and cheerfully to contribute of the good things with which God has blessed them, what is needful for their comfortable substance. Ministers are to give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. They're not to entangle themselves with the affairs of this life, and therefore it is but fit and equitable that while they are sowing to others' spiritual things, they should reap their carnal things." And this is the appointment of God himself, for as under the law, those who ministered out of the holy things lived of the things of the temple. So hath the Lord ordained that those who preach the gospel should live of the gospel. And so as I was thinking about how this too might come under attack today from culture, I recognized all the various ways that we see abuse within the church in regards to this very thing. And it grieved me as I thought about it. It grieved me as one who stands before God and who stands before you humbly and thankful and a recipient of the generosity of this church by the grace of God. It grieved me to see those who have marred the the place of the pastor within the church who have sought the ministry for financial gain, Isn't that crazy? So many other places you can make more money. But who have sought the pastorate as some sort of financial gain, who have have desired to be in a place of leadership for the sake of wielding power, who have structured the church like a business. Brothers and sisters, I'm not owed a salary or a pension, but I'm deserving of financial support. And that's what Paul is saying here. This church owes me nothing, and yet out of its generosity and by the grace of God, through faith in what God calls us to, we are supported. That is a humbling, humbling thing. And I want you guys to know that I stand before you today in humility and in fear before God, knowing that I will be accountable for all that has been given to me. Not just shepherding this church, but in what this church has provided to me and my family. That's a remarkable thing. And so church, we, when we reform our thinking in alignment with scripture, and when we begin to live for the community of believers as Paul instructs here, we're not just doing the right thing in order to benefit ourselves. This is I'm coming to a land right here too. This is I'm just playing with you, Jimmy. When we we'll wait for it to So when we realign our thinking church, it's not that we're just doing the right thing, okay? Listen to me, please, because this is important. I, I really want you to hear me. When we do these things, we are actually waging war against the demonic spiritual systems that govern the hearts of man. When we live this way, that is a true statement. When we live counterculturally, church, we confront the spirit of the age. We're fighting the false gospels that are being perpetuated within culture. And we, when we say yes in these ways to the king and to his kingdom and we say yes to what he has instituted in his wisdom, we are simultaneously saying no to the prince of the power of the air. And we're, we are tangibly, visibly confronting the error and the foolishness of this world today. That's why we do this. That's why this is important. That's why Paul has understood that the, 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 to, to relay to us now what is the fruit of the Spirit in a community of believers because, again, brothers and sisters, this matters greatly. The purposes of God find their ultimate expression in the corporate church. That's why this matters. So they are not simply good ideas These are ways of living that speak loudly of the majesty of God, His desire for His creation, and loudly of who He is. That's why it's important, and that's why it should be important to us as well. Amen?